We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Aikman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve oh! Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up close to the end zone. Olsen, touchdown! Brian Burns to the house! This one is picked again. Intercepted by Boston. Bridgewater throw into the end zone. Touchdown! Samuel still on his feet inside the five to the end zone. Touchdown! What a play! And it is caught for the touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. Keep pounding on three. One, two, three. Keep pounding. All right, Panthers fans, welcome to another edition of the Roar Podcast, sort of a season in review and, and looking forward to a very interesting show here with some conversations, uh, among other things, with some sports writers that are covering sort of the general manager landscape out there as Carolina continues to search for their next guy in charge uh, in the front office. Billy Marshall is here and has conducted some great uh, interviews. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing well, and these conversations were so enlightening because unlike head coaches, um, with personnel executives, you can't really clean that much. These are individuals who are in the background. They don't do press conferences. They're not really, um, you know, you don't really have the source to be able to speak to them on a weekly or even monthly basis. So uh, it was very enlightening in some ways to hear these different um, reporters who cover the teams give me some insight into what these guys do and i hope everyone takes um, a lot from that um, now i will caveat it um, we're recording this on wednesday um, it was reported yesterday that nick casario will be going to houston right um, and that was part of what i interviewed for um, the new england patriots uh, beat writer evan lazar evan lazar of course who does great work for uh, the new england side of things and has a lot of great insights and i know you've talked to nick underhill uh, Zach Hicks, a few other guys out there. So we're looking forward to hearing it uh, all right here on the Roar Podcast, brought to you by Blue Wire. Check us out uh, on iTunes. Check us out on Spotify and subscribe anytime. But we've got a great show coming up for you here as Billy takes you through some of the general manager info that you need to know right here on the Roar Podcast. And to help us preview Nick Casario and Monty Ossenfort, uh, we have Evan Lazar, who uh, does a tremendous amount of great work covering the Patriots. And with the draft approaching, he also does 
uh, puts out some excellent content. Uh, does it for uh, CLSN Media? Uh, I believe that's what it is with the out there it's in Boston. To say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I really enjoy your work, especially in the draft too. I know we have a lot of uh, dialogue back and forth. Um, but let's uh, stick with what's going on here in Carolina with their GM search. Uh, the one name that popped up on Sunday evening was Nick Casera, who's been with the uh, Patriots organization for a while. Um, I know there was a lot of talk about him potentially going to Houston last year, but uh, there was some contract language that prevented that. Uh, can you clarify um, what that situation is like uh, today? Sure. So the Patriots just signed Nick Casario to a contract extension in February. That was thought to be multiple years. It wasn't really ever confirmed how long the deal was for, but it was thought to be for multiple years. Then the league uh, had the owners meetings in May and the owners passed a bylaw saying that teams could no longer prevent their their GM, assistant GMs, director of player personnel, head scouts, things like that from moving up the food chain to a general manager position. So the Patriots used to have language in Nick Casario's contract that blocked him from taking a general manager job with uh, one of the other 31 teams in the NFL. But now the owners have put a kibosh on that. So there's no longer any sort of stipulation in his contract saying that he can no longer move. He can't go to another team to be director of player personnel or or a job that would look as a lateral move. But if he wants to move up the pecking order and become a general manager, then there's nothing holding him back at this point. So Casario has a lot of different roles within the Patriots organization. Um, I've seen him sometimes at practices helping, um, you know, whether it's wide receivers or corners, um, just by pictures. And I think you've touched on this too. Uh, but as far as what his role is within the Patriots organization, um, you know, whether it's scouting analytics, cap, is it more broad or does he kind of focus on one area? I would say it's pretty broad. And that's the one thing that kind of gives me questions about his fit in terms of moving on to a different team is how many different teams are going to allow their general managers to be running drills out at practice and then in the coach's booth during games. And, you know, really that hands-on with the day-to-day operation of the team, not just on a big picture draft development, player personnel, pro personnel, that side of things. But just in terms of actually being out there on the practice field every single day and going through it, I think Casario enjoys that part of his job in New England and isn't going to just go to another situation where he's not going to be able to do any of those things. Now, in terms of what he does in the front office, a lot of what he does is the grunt work that Bill Belichick during the football season doesn't have time to do. Obviously, he's not. Bill's not going to have time to watch the rest of the league, watch all the players in college, organize the college scouting department for the draft the next year, all while he's coaching the Patriots during the regular season. So what Nick Casario does is a lot of those little things, a lot of those organizational things when it comes to making decisions with the pro personnel, you know, scouting other players uh, rosters and other players uh, you know, in free agency or trades or whatever, maybe will happen during the season and then obviously getting things squared away with the draft side of things as well in the college scouting department too. So a lot of different hats, but I think the one unique thing that I wanted to point out to you, Billy, was that he really does 
have a hands-on approach with the football team on a day-to-day basis that not a lot of general managers across the league necessarily have. You watch a lot of these games and they show the general manager and he'll be up in, you know, the owner's box or something like that, uh, watching the game like a fan for the most part, where Nick Casario has a headset on in the coach's booth communicating with Josh McDaniels, communicating with Bill Belichick, and uh, going through a lot of different scenarios with the coaches as well as just doing what a normal general manager probably would do. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it seems like um, the crafts uh, compensate him pretty well, too. If you ever watch uh, some of these draft day videos, you can see Casario's on the line with other teams in the in the NFL whenever they're either executing trades or putting the pick in. So, um, yeah, for me, I, I think that he, he kind of reminds me of Eric DaCosta, uh, where every year teams wanted to interview him, but eventually when Ozzie Newsom retired, DeCosta became elevated to the um, general manager. But another guy I want to speak to you about is Monty Austin Ford, and he's with the Tennessee Titans now, but prior to that, he spent 16 years with the Patriots organization. Um, I was just watching a little bit of uh, this documentary, Do Your Job, and I think Austin Ford was kind of headlining it about their college scouting process. Um, is that what he was focused on when he was with the organization, uh, just the college scouting and kind of – Um, delegating the tasks to different scouts across the country? Correct. So he was their director of college scouting for many years. And I think the biggest thing with Austin Ford is that he gets a lot of credit for finding those diamonds in the rough, for finding the Malcolm Butlers and the J.C. Jacksons and the David Andrews and Adam Butler and all these players that the Patriots have had that they've gotten from undrafted free agency. Uh, Jacoby Myers, I mean, we can keep on going with that list. It's a long one. And he gets a lot of credit. I think internally for not really overlooking any of those guys, no stone unturned, being willing to kind of go that extra mile to dig deep into those uh, undrafted rookie pool and figure out who the best guys are for the Patriots there. I'm not saying that all the success is given to Austin Fort, but that was a big part of his job. You know, I think the Patriots are, one of those teams that recognize that their board is probably going to be significantly different than a lot of other people's boards. Certainly a lot different than mine is every single year. And that's not necessarily to say that they're right or wrong, Mm -hmm. but they have a very unique, unique way of scouting uh, players in the draft that is, is not necessarily held throughout the entire league. I think one of the most unique parts about it is that they work in a tiered system. So they might actually group together a cluster system tier system they might group together 10 guys into one cluster guys that maybe we might see as you know the difference between a top 50 pick and a third round guy they might actually see them as equal talents or or equal ceilings and equal uh, ability to fill the role that they want them to fill and that's sort of the x the uh, second part about it is that the patriots are really big on role players and and finding specific roles that players that they draft will fit so they're not going to just draft a guy like it's madden and just say he's the most talented guy on the board we'll find a place to put him when they draft somebody they have a very specific role in mind strong safety third down running back x receiver you know those are the types of things that they look at and uh, austin ford was a big part of what they did with the director of uh with the college scouting side of things now he's a director of player personnel with the titans so that was a promotion for him and that's why he left new england do you think austin ford would make a good general manager I do think that he has the attention to detail and I think he's got the direction and sort of the vision that you would want out of a general manager. The one thing that I I think that he hasn't had as much experience with is being the guy, 
right, that has all the pressure on him and has everybody looking to him as the leader in the building and the leader uh, of the organization and from a, a player personnel standpoint. I think Casario has a lot more experience in that regard in terms of being that kind of face being out there with the media answering questions. Every single uh, draft I've covered, the Patriots have had Casario answer as many questions about their draft as Belichick. And I think that's on purpose to give Casario that experience of being out in front of the camera and understanding, you know, what the pressures are and what the questions are going to be like and how to answer those things professionally. So Austin Ford is a lot more of behind the scenes type of guy, especially with New England. We really did not hear anything of him. I, I would say that he was one of those, the Patriots have many of these guys. Ernie Adams is one that gets a lot of love mm -hmm. now. That's sort of like a ghost in the building. Everybody knows he's there, but no one really hears from him. I would say Austin Ford fits much more in that bill, whereas Casario is somebody that's a little bit more out in the in the forefront of things. Yeah, just given how the Panthers um, are set up right now, Matt Rule is going to have a pretty big voice uh, when it comes to personnel. So I'd imagine it's going to be um, someone like Austin Ford who can kind of stand in the background and do a scouting on a yeah. year-round basis. Um, but Evan, I really want to thank you for you know, coming in here and providing this tremendous insight into these two candidates. Uh, really appreciate everything you do. And uh, again, everyone, you can find on Twitter at Easy Lazar. Evan, thanks again. Thanks, Billy. To help us get an idea of Colts, uh, Assistant General Manager Ed Dodds, uh, we have Zach Hicks from Stampede Blue. They are the SB Nation affiliate of the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, Zach does tremendous work um, doing film analysis, but um, this time of the year, he's also a really good follow because he covers the draft uh, exceptionally well, not only breaking down prospects, but also interviewing them too. Zach, thank you for joining. Hey, man. Appreciate uh, you having me on here to talk about, uh, about Dodds. I've heard a lot of good things around the league about him. Yeah, and I guess the first thing is, um, what is Ed Dodds' role within the organization? Um, because I, there was a documentary that I watched on the Colts a couple of seasons ago that they were following, like the scouting staff, and Dodds mm -hmm. seemed to have a pretty big voice uh, in those meetings. Um, what can you say about the kind of role that he has right now within the Colts' front office? Yeah, he's he's really well-respected in the Colts' front office, and he's a a huge part of what they do. Um, they actually released another one of those documentaries. I'm assuming you're talking about their uh, with the first pick uh, documentary they do. Uh, they did one two years ago and they also released another one last year as well. So anyone who's interested in, in seeing a little bit more about Ed Dodds, uh, go to the Colts YouTube channel and watch the with the first pick series. Ed Dodds is a very, very prominent voice on that for the Colts. But uh, you know, it, the big thing about Dodds is he is a huge talent evaluator. Uh, it's kind of what he was in Seattle under uh, Snyder. And, and you know, I, I think Snyder also said that uh, Dodds was kind of his secret weapon for all those years. And, and uh, you know, the Colts are very, very lucky to, to poach him for the assistant GM job because uh, personally, I, I, you know, from, from talking to agents and players and stuff and and kind of from my very limited sources around the league and stuff like that, uh, Ed Dodds is known as one of the best talent evalu evaluators in all of football. Um, I, I don't think that's much of a secret. Uh, he's been doing it for so long with, you know, again, the Seahawks before the Colts and, and also here with Indy. So, uh, you know, he, he does do a lot of everything, but the biggest thing is, is that, is that uh, college valuation, pro evaluation, uh, he plays a really, really big part in that for the Colts. Um, and there's a big reason why they've been able to find so many gems here in the draft the last couple of years. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because because I'm not sure what his exact role is. Some of the guys they're interviewing um, are like analytics guys, or some of them are mm-hmm. salary cap people. Others are more on the pro personnel side. Uh, but it seems like Dodd's main focus, um, you know, has been on the scouting, whether it's pro or college personnel. Yeah, yeah, he's mostly uh, been just running that aspect of. It. I mean, again, he does a lot of everything. Uh, mm-hmm. He he does everything that Ballard does. You know, obviously he's the assistant GM, so he does a lot of that stuff. But uh, where he really, really shines is that valuation standpoint from uh, the pro and, and college scouting. And uh, he's put together a really good staff here with Ballard uh, running the college scouting. And and again, like like I said, they've they've been able to find so many good gems in the draft, not only in the first round, but uh, you know, guys after the first round like Darius Leonard, Julian Blackman. Uh, Naeem Hines and on day three you know a lot of guys who have gone on to ha- be pretty productive here for the Colts and a big reason why they're in the playoffs so uh, yeah Dodds plays a huge huge part in that aspect of the roster building. Sure and I guess my other question is you know the Colts they seem to have a very um, a thorough and transparent process with their mm-hmm. um, scouting evaluation. Uh, can you discuss what that's like whether it's um, on the draft side if they're looking um, for a specific kind of athlete, uh, you don't have to get into each individual, but um, is that sort of like the process they take when they are scouting? Yeah, you know, the Colts are are very interesting with how they go about their scouting. You know, they, again, like I said, they find a lot of gems in the draft, uh, but they have a very, very thorough process that they go through. You know, it's uh, there are obvious trends that you can kind of look at and see, you know, uh, for instance, I know, for the most part, Ballard and in the front office, they typically don't draft cornerbacks under a certain height. Uh, typically like to have defense alignment with a certain arm length, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been able to narrow down exactly what those, those parameters are. Uh, they're not being super, super open with it, which is, you know, obviously in their best interest, but um, you know, they do have kind of those, those baseline metrics that they like for each position that doesn't necessarily exclude certain things, but, you know, it helps them to identify which players are most likely to hit. Uh, and again, it's a big reason with kind of that finding those gems here in the later rounds. But another huge, huge aspect of the Colts front office structure um, is their use of, I believe his name is Brian Decker. Uh, he was a former Green Beret, uh, and he's actually their guy who is there to evaluate character. Uh, not just football character, but just overall character of people. Uh, they bring him down to the Senior Bowl. They bring him to the Combine. Uh, and he's really just there to assess the character of the players that they want to draft. And, uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't really get the final say on guys, but, we, you know, when they want to verify, you know, there's a guy they really like on film, they want to verify if he'd be a good fit in this team and, and for the culture. You know, they go through Decker for that stuff. So uh, the Colts are very thorough with everything they go through. It's not just on the on the field side. It's it's every little thing from character, from from background and stuff because they don't want players just to be a fit on the field for the team they also want players to be a fit in that locker room and in the community so uh, that's why you've seen again with the Colts they they have a great job of building a roster that not only is really good on the field and and has done good things to make the playoffs but also uh, you know fits really well together they have great cohesive chemistry Uh, great dudes do a lot in the community uh, and that's that's just a really big aspect of one they want to build here. So uh, from top to bottom, they have a very, very cohesive plan with what they're doing. Uh, but that character and, and other things like that do play a big part. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly um, you know, good to hear. It seems like he's very process or at least the Colts front office. Um, they are very process oriented and uh, you can just look at their results that they have. They've had with the draft. They've been hitting on a lot of these. 
um, later round and like you said, undrafted free agents. And and before we wrap up here, I guess my question is, um, do you feel like Dodds will eventually get a, a GM gig and if he's ready for it? Yeah, you know, honestly, I, I think he's definitely deserving of it. It all comes down to how bad he really wants it. Uh, you know, when it, I think the opportunity came last year where he could have interviewed for the Browns gig, uh, but he actually turned that one down. Uh, and there are, have been some whispers. I'm not going to, you know, it's nothing I can really confirm because I don't have enough, you know, solid sources on or anything like that. But there have been some whispers that he's not super keen on being one as of right now. But again, that, that could be completely false. Uh, he could fall in love with the fit in Carolina or any of these other uh, open GM spots. But uh, the big thing I will say about Dodds, from what I've heard from a couple agents, I actually had um, one particular, I had one agent in particular reach out to me, you know, about one of his players last year who was uh, going to be an undrafted free agent. Like we, we both knew, uh, they all knew. Uh, he hit me up, you know, right before draft time and said that Ed Dodds was one of the most honest and straightforward guys he's talked to in the entire league throughout this whole process. Uh, Dodds actually personally reached out to the player, uh, was very honest about where he saw the player going, uh, honest about the Colts situation at that position, and also honest about, you know, the Colts having interest in bringing him in, but they know it might not be, you know, a super likely thing. And, and just that very straightforward and honest conversation that he had with the player and with the agent uh, kind of went that extra length for, for both those guys. And it built a really good reputation there. So uh, I haven't just heard it from that one guy. I've heard it from a lot of people that Dodds is uh, just a really, really well-respected, really honest, really straightforward guy. And, and he builds those relationships really well in that regard. So uh, if he's like that with other aspects, you know, just building those relationships with other people around the league and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I, I think he's going to be a great person for the job one day. It, it really all comes down to, if he sees the fit there and if he wants it, uh, he's going to be uh, one of the better GMs in the league. I, I fully endorse wherever he ends up going, even though we'd love for him to stay in Indy under Ballard for, for a hundred years. But uh, you know, wherever he goes, he's going to be one of the better GMs in football. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it happens a lot of these, um, you know, higher elevated uh, personnel executives like George Payton in Minneapolis or Minnesota mm-hmm. and Nick Casario in New England. And you saw it for many years, Eric DeCosta in Baltimore. They just feel really comfortable where they're at and they feel like um, it's not really pertinent to move on. And, and that's just the nature of the business that happens. And a lot of uh, times you just have to live with that. But, um, but, but from what I'm hearing, it, it sounds like, um, you know, Ed Dodge is certainly a qualified candidate, which um, is yeah. encouraging at least Carolina's, uh, maybe going to interview him. But uh, Zach, again, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Is there anything you want to plug before we uh, sign off? Yeah, not too much right now. I mean, I'm assuming you guys wouldn't be super interested in uh, watching or uh, reading anything about the Colts upcoming matchup here with the Bills. Uh, but yeah, like like Billy said here, you know, come, come draft season, I'll be very active with Cover One, uh, doing a lot of prospect interviews and film breakdowns and stuff. So uh, yeah, definitely check that stuff out. Check that stuff out if you guys are interested in that. But uh, you know, like I've been saying about this whole thing here, Dodds, uh, I think he's gonna be a great GM. Uh, but selfishly, I hope he does not end up in Carolina. <laughs> I hope he stays with Indy. But um, I do like what you guys are building there, so I'm I'm excited to see the future with you guys there. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Zach Hicks Tooth. Zach, thanks again. Yeah, of course, man. Anytime. To help us get an idea of Two gentlemen from the world champion Kansas City Chiefs, um, Brant Tillis and Ryan Pulse. We are joined by Pete Sweeney of Arrowhead Pride. Pete, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for having me on. 
And it's whenever you you have as much success as the Chiefs have had, um, your teams are going to come plucking for your either your coaches, your personnel men. It looks like it worked out for um, the Indianapolis Colts when they were able to hire Chris Ballard. Um, so it really isn't shocking that Carolina is interested in the Kansas City front office. And the first guy I want to start with um, that I'm really fascinated with is Brent Tillis. And I was reading your article, and then I found a picture of um, his responsibilities. I think it's from a program that the Chiefs, a media guide in 2018. Um, first of all, he seems really young. Um, but second of all, what I'm fascinated by is the kind of the foresight he had um, because it seems like he was credited in some ways with the Mahomes extension. Um, what can you tell us about him in his role with the organization? Yeah, he's the first of these two guys, and he's been with the organization a long time. And I believe 2020 was his 11th season in Kansas City, meaning he's gone through a few regime changes. And Brett Veach, I think, that's the latest GM for the Chiefs and the one who helped lead them to the Super Bowl championship. I, I think he really saw what Tillis can do when it comes to just what you said, the foresight. And so they draft Patrick Mahomes. Very quickly, they realize he's going to be special. So rather than doing what some teams have historically done, it's, well, when Mahomes' contract is up, we'll figure it out. Really seemed like the Chiefs started planning way ahead of time. And Tillis had a lot to do with that. There was also another executive. His name is Chris Shea. Really, Tillis and Shea are this super team. And their expertise is managing all of these really big contracts under the salary cap. And you think about the Kansas City Chiefs. You think about all their power players and just how many really good players are on the team. And especially when it comes to core players and how much they're getting paid, like a Frank Clark, Tyron Matthew, Chris Jones, Travis Kelsey, and of course, Patrick Mahomes. And that was the point I hit on with Tillis and Veach had said it after they had their Mahomes press conference. It's that Tillis knew ahead of time that Mahomes' contract <clears throat> was going to be that of baseball, meaning this super deal, 10 years, 500 million, that's half a billion dollars. And he became really the richest contract in sports. And they found a really creative way to do it because you know, the NFL isn't MLB. There's a salary cap. You got to figure out a way to keep the salary cap. And when Mahomes' contract first came out, there were these things called guarantee mechanisms in it, which no one has really heard or I think really even understands to this day. But what it does is it allows Kansas City to keep the salary under the cap, allows them to continue to surround him with talent, and they can address it each and every year. There's room for them to make different moves because Mahomes bought into this. And then once Mahomes bought in, so did Chris Jones and Travis Kelsey. And really, he's become a salary cap wizard. And he's especially attractive, I think, to the Panthers because from what I can see, again, outside looking in, I covered the Chiefs, but Matt Rule wants to keep roster control. And Tillis is less of a football man and more of a money man where Rule could say, hey, we want these guys. Let's figure out how to keep them under the cap. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's kind of what stood out to me too. Um, the Panthers, they did hire a salary cap um, guy who was also widely respected from Pittsburgh last offseason, Samir Suleiman. Um, but when I'm looking at some of the job titles that Tillis also has within the organization, I think it said something about football ops analytics. Um, is that something he also does with the organization too? There's a role there. I would say he's more on the 
cap side, okay. but he does work at, with analytics in understanding value of players that others may not. You know, everyone is trying to get into analytics similar to what you saw in baseball, where suddenly it was this thing with, which was given teams like the Oakland Athletics and the Tampa Bay Rays an advantage. And then eventually I think everyone picked up on that aspect. So he works closely with the analytics department for that extra edge. And I think that experience has led him to getting some attention like this from the Carolina Panthers. Awesome. That's awesome to hear. Um, now I want to transition to the other uh, candidates uh, that they are going to be uh, potentially interviewing. It's Ryan Poles. Um, it seems like he's also been with the organization for quite a while, you say uh, 12 years. And I believe he started off as a scouting assistant. Um, just based off what I'm reading here on his background, it seems like Poles is more of your traditional scout. And yes. the Chiefs, um, I mean, it doesn't really take a, you know, someone with an Ivy league degree to know that the chiefs draft really well. I know hitting on Mahomes certainly helps, but just looking yeah. at the back end of the roster, um, certainly some hits on day two and day three of the draft. Um, is that kind of accurate that polls is more of like a college scouting pro scouting um, type of guy? Yeah, for sure. A right-hand man in a sense for Veach. And he has some sway in the draft room because he has gone through the college ranks and, and grown into that role. And I think, again, you nailed it with those day three picks, those undrafted free agents, uh, those trades that you make, a seventh rounder, and you flip them for a rookie. The Chiefs have a lot of really strong contributors when it comes to undrafted free agents and folks that were available via trade that in the last minute a team needed a certain something. The guy doesn't sound like it. All of a sudden, it's a starting cornerback for the Chiefs and someone like Trevarius Ward, for example. Poles has been outstanding in that. And then this last draft was a virtual draft, all virtual drafts, which we know. And so you had Brett Veach, and he makes the final call in the draft picks. And what Poles did was he was almost the Zoom manager. So not only could he give Veach feedback on the board, which he knew really well, he could, if Veach needed an assistant coach, a scouting assistant, someone who actually saw player X play, polls would go and make sure that they were looped into the zoom call. And so in doing that, he had eyes and ears on the draft, just like the chief's general manager did. And the chiefs have again, drafted pretty well over the past couple of years. And they did a nice job after the draft and making sure that they had these free agents as I'm describing him. This is something I wrote in my article, much more of a football man than mm -hmm. I think Tillis would be considered. And again, with that rule control, similar to Andy Reid had back in the day with the Philadelphia Eagles, I'm not sure it would be necessarily as attractive to polls as it would be Tillis, because I, I just think that he's going to want to have control and full control of the football decisions, but remains to be seen. I mean, we've seen scenarios where maybe Matt Rule likes a polls and says what I want here is for us to work hand in hand. You're going to have a true say and you know, things can be worked out like that. Uh, but again, I, I just, I go back to that. I think Tillis is a better fit for what the Panthers are looking for than polls would be. Sure. And uh, polls as a former offensive tackle. Um, he played at Boston college graduate in 2007. Matt roll again, another former offensive um, lineman. Um, so, I mean, I guess you could see some cross parallel there, but between that, it seems like he spent uh, the majority, well, it looks like he spent the majority of his 
NFL career with the Kansas City organization. Again, another young guy. Um, now, let me ask you just some in- intangible questions, and maybe you don't know, uh, but between the two of them, how would you describe sort of like their leadership and their ability to um, kind of potentially lead an organization if they're able to kind of, uh, you know, get the other individuals underneath them and help kind of uh, create one direction for the organization moving in the future? From my experience and from what I know, both actually are mild-mannered type of guys, quieter guys. They're not necessarily allowed there. Go and get it and, and sort of take orders. Now, when you're the leadership position, I think that that brings that part of you out of you. I mean, they've been in positions where they've been the understudy for what has been a decade. So there really hasn't necessarily been an opportunity for press conferences and things like that. If I had to choose one or the, over the other from based upon what I know, I think polls probably would be slightly better as far as a leader goes and leading a franchise and having that voice and being able to deal with the media and really knowing what he wants. You know, that being said, we just haven't had the opportunity to necessarily see these guys with the spotlight shined on them quite yet. As, as much as Brett Veach can be at a press conference and compliment these two guys, we never get an opportunity to talk to them ourselves, which would be a first for these two guys if they were the decision. I tend to think, based upon what I just said, I think the Panthers rightly are doing their due diligence, but I don't necessarily see either as a fit or ready for the GM role just yet, mm-hmm. but I've been wrong on these things before we, we will see maybe the Panthers go aggressive. I, I think a lot of people would say outside looking in again, that rule was not an expected true candidate for a head coaching position. And I thought he did a nice job in, in Carolina. Yeah. Their record wasn't great, but they were in a lot of games, including one against the chiefs. So who knows if they continue to be aggressive and do things that maybe we're not expecting. Sure. And it, it, like you said, it doesn't hurt to speak to two well-regarded members of the probably the best organization in the NFL right now. Um, just and, to see, you know, just to see what other teams are doing. Right. And, you know, everything is information. Again, what we know right now is these guys were requested. We think based upon Andy Reid's words about them that they'd be allowed to interview, but you don't get a lot of information when it comes to personnel men, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately you don't. I haven't seen any confirmed interviews. I know a few other other candidates. It's uh, The Panthers, they have actually released. Um, they're doing a good job of being transparent of guys they've interviewed, but I haven't seen uh, polls or Tillis yet. But hopefully they do. And uh, Pete, I just really, really want to thank you for coming on. Everyone, you can find him on Twitter at PGSween. Uh, does a tremendous job covering the Chiefs. Um, just excellent content over there at Arrowhead Pride. Uh, Pete, thank you again. Yes, and I'm sorry I have to say this, but I have to say it. Thank you for Harrison Butker, right? Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> to help us get an idea of New Orleans Saints Assistant General Manager Jeff Ireland, we are happy to be joined again by Nick Underhill from New Orleans.Football. Fantastic website. I recommend all Panthers fans subscribe to it. Um, only $8 a month. Um, I was reading this morning about a preview for the Chicago Bears. It's really excellent to speak to you again. Nick, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, doing pretty good. So, you know, the Panthers, uh, they are searching again for uh, another general manager. And Jeff Ireland was a name that came up. Um, you know, he was a general manager for 
the Miami Dolphins. Uh, and I know a lot of Dolphin fans like to pick fun at Jeff Ireland, especially in your mentions. I've noticed that. Um, but what can you say about the job that he's done since he joined the Saints front office in, I believe, 2017? I, I would say the first thing just about the Miami tenure, one is is – if this does go further with, with Ireland, I would recommend that people read Bill Parcells' book and see the moves that Parcells takes credit for in that book. And some of them are some of the more controversial decisions. And it gives you a little bit of the behind the scenes of of how that process came together. So, you know, I, I, I don't think Ireland, you know, necessarily did the greatest job there. But some of the stuff that happened and some of the more notorious things, I, I think, were also partially due to you know, Parcells seeing things and, and making some, uh, you know, some bad decisions, frankly. Um, you know, in New Orleans, his presence has really been the turnaround for this organization that, you know, they were having a hard time drafting and developing players. They, they did okay in 16. They got Mike Thomas. Um, you know, 17 What was really the draft, though, where Ireland was able to put his his stamp on it and you look top to bottom and they did a, a really fantastic job of, you know, just bringing in franchise changing talent, you know, across the board, Marshawn Lattimore, um, Marcus Williams, Alvin Kamara, Trey Hendrickson now, Ryan Ramchek, you know, and, and that's really the foundation of, of this team in this four-year window that they're on. And, you know, I, I think Ireland needed to maybe, you know, get a job, fail and learn what he doesn't know and you know you you often see head coaches get the latitude to do that they get a job they fall on their face they become a coordinator again and then they get another chance you don't see that so much with with general managers and you know it's a little bit weird to me that that Jeff could you know rebuild this whole franchise rein in a coach who who frankly you know is is very hard-headed and and you know, dominates a lot of stuff within the organization. And Jeff has been able to, to you know, pull him back a little bit and, and be a voice that he listens to. I mean, I, I just think that that he would be, you know, really good for, for any organization that wants to be able to build to the draft and, you know, just have good scouts around him, you know, on, on the pro side. And, he you know, he plays a part in that here too, alongside Terry Fontenot. And, you know, they he, he's just, you know, someone that, that has been a really calming influence, I think, on, on this franchise. And, you know, I, I think he's more than due for another shot. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like he's been vindicated, too, by the Ryan Tannehill selection um, because you see yes. how Tannehill's able to succeed now with the right structure and the offense around him. Um, but, you know, speaking specifically, I don't want you to maybe, you know, give out all the details that you're not supposed to, but um, f- from the scouting standpoint, what exactly did he do that's allowed them to draft all of these, you know, fantastic prospects since he joined. You know, I, I think that they, they just have done a good job of identifying talent. One of the things, one of the main things they did here, and this is, you know, a pretty basic thing, but they had gotten away from just having prototypes and, you know, it was just kind of willy nilly drafting guys, you know, and they were changing their system all the time. And I think that, that, Jeff was able to, again, like Sean was, you know, he, he, he's a, he's a guy that, that, you know, kind of dominates everything. And then like, they were, they were really good in defense in 13 and he decided, you know, he wanted to change it. And he thought the way the Seahawks were playing defense was the way to go. So they started drafting for that system the next year. And, 
you know, things just kind of were, were just spiraling a little bit. And Jeff came in and, and he just provided that strong voice and he was able to get them to sit down, you know, just look at everything all the way down to the basics and just kind of rebuild it back to a place where there was just, you know, a very rigid process. And look, some of the picks they didn't make turned out to be good ones. Um, you know, they wanted Ruben Foster at the end of the uh, first round in 2017. They got jumped for him by San Francisco. So they dodged a bullet there. Um, you know, and Neil Stratton, he, he has a book out um, from inside the league, and Jeff wrote the forward on it. That was that was a Sean Payton move. Sean wanted him. Ireland wanted Ramchek, and it ended up going to Ramchek. They got lucky there. So, you know, it's just – I think a lot of the things he he's done has just really been he, he just really put a very good process in place. And look, Jeff has done that everywhere he's been. And on the college mm-hmm. side, I, I I don't think his credentials are really you know. There's been a few things, a few things in Miami or whatever. But you know, going back to Dallas, coming to here, it looks like Miami's kind of the outlier of his career where some things went a little bit sideways. But his process has always been very successful in you know identifying players, drafting them, and you know. I just think that that's really it's just the nuts and bolts, good, solid, sound scouting, having conviction, setting your board, sticking to it. I think it's just all those things that, you know, we, people take for granted. But I think in a lot of places, you know, that stuff can go sideways and, and there could become too many voices in that. And I think Jeff has done a very good job of just clearing out the noise and, and just making it a very straightforward process. So do they rely on what Sean Pate and the coaching staff, like, do they have sort of like a threshold as far as um, we're looking for athletic guys who can press line scrimmage with this kind of arm length, or is the scouting process mainly built through um, Jeff Ireland and the scouting staff? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's both. They, they, the coaches do end up coming in and they kind of do like their, final layer of evaluation they kind of go through and then see the guy so it's like it starts out with the scouts and they go through their whole process and then as it goes on and they whittle down and they start to shape the board the coaches come in they watch they look at the players they give their evaluations and then Jeff Mickey and Sean kind of take all of it and then they set the final board and they draft off of that so I mean there is definitely like you know a set of recommendations at the end of the season they they create you know their wish list or whatever that stuff goes out and you know they they, they keep those things in mind but I mean it, it is very scouting influenced um you know setting the board getting the guys identifying the prospects and then you know kind of at the end the coaches have their little bit of input but you know I don't think they have final say and then when it comes time to draft is it's Sean Mickey and Jeff um you know kind of making a collaborative decision and you know, most of the time that they're usually on the same page. I've heard a few, you know, stories where there's been differing voices. You know, I think Sean Payton wanted to draft Tunzel the one year and, you know, Jeff was able to talk him into sticking to the board. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it says something for him in the level of respect and cachet. And, and, you know, I, I just can't say enough, like, a, like this guy being able to pull in Sean Payton, like there's just not a lot of people that can do that. <laughs> right. And him being able to have that voice and, and just have that level of respect, I think speaks volumes, you know, that that's his resume right there. And, you know, coming somewhere else going with role, like, you know, I think they would fit together. 
I believe they have a previous relationship at some point. So, I mean, you know, I think that would be a good situation for, for, you know, both of them. So Carolina's at least smart enough to look at this guy who's, who's kind of had, you know, you look around the league, there aren't too many teams that have had like a transformative draft class like this in the last four or five years. You know, at least Carolina is one of the two teams that's smart enough to be like, hey, maybe we should at least talk to this guy. Yeah, and, and speaking of the connection, I believe uh, Jeff Ireland, he went to Baylor and obviously Matt Rule coached there. I, I don't know if there was any other overlap between them. Um, but but before we do close out, I haven't heard any reports yet, but I know uh, another member of the Saints front office, Terry Fondant, he's also been getting interviews. I think the Falcons, Lions, and Jaguars um, have requested an interview with him. Again, Carolina's doing a pretty wide net, so I imagine uh, he could come up. Uh, is there anything you can say about the role that he's had? It looks like he's more pro personnel, but um, I mean, the Saints have done pretty well on that side too, just looking at Emmanuel Sanders' impact this year. Yeah, he, he's done a really good job on that side of Emmanuel Sanders to Mario Davis. You know, a lot of the free agents since uh, Ryan Pace left and, and went to Chicago, he he kind of took over. Terry Fontenot kind of took over that that pro side. And, you know, I, I think they've done a really good job of, of finding it and identifying free agents who who fit their system and they've kind of gotten away a little bit from from overpaying those guys and they've made some shrewd moves on that side demario davis is probably one of the the better signings they've had in quite a while so he's definitely an up-and-coming uh you know guy in in the league his rise has been pretty quick you know a very organized person um you know, he can command a room, just a very likable person, does a good job scouting. You know, I, I think he's played a big part in the rebuild as well. You know, Jeff gets a lot of the credit because, you know, the draft is flashier and, and they've had much bigger hits in the draft since he came. But yeah, Terry's definitely very, very good at what he does, deserves a shot. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if somebody does hire him because you get him in a room and, and he's just someone that's that's going to, He's going to make you like him. There's just a warmth to him that, you know, I could just see him getting somewhere. And even if he's a dark horse candidate in one of these buildings, someone eventually is going to just really fall in love with him as a person. And, you know, he has the credentials to back it up. So he's, uh, you know, the Saints very quickly could, could lose two of the uh, more important voices in, in their front office. Yeah, I mean, it should be a very interesting offseason to follow. And um, you can read all of that information on Nick's website, neworleans.football. Um, I really enjoy a lot of the film analysis he does uh, every week. Um, helps me kind of understand a lot of what the Saints are doing, especially because Joe Brady um, and Sean Payton have a connection. But uh, Nick, really thank you again for coming on and helping us here. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get started pushing your show out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month. 
the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box for this episode to find more. But that's bwhustle.com slash join. And to help us preview, Joe Shane of the Buffalo Bills, the assistant general manager for that great organization, number two seed in the AFC. Uh, we have Greg Thompson of Cover One. Greg, how are you this evening? Not too bad. How are you? Excited to be able to talk with you guys. It's uh, it's very different being on the other end of the spectrum. We've <laughs> spent the past 20 years being the team looking to pluck the uh, other other candidates. It's pretty rare for us to now be the tree that's being plucked from, but uh, I, I hopefully I can get used to it. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, for us Carolina fans, we're a little jealous because Brandon Bean and um, a few others from that organization, they start out in Carolina. So um, we see what you guys are doing over there, and we're kind of a little envious. Of hopefully that we'll reach um, that level again. And, and to help us, or to help this franchise reach that level again, is um, going to have to be a GM. And one uh, guy in particular that Carolina is going to be in- interviewing is uh, Joe Shane, like I said at the beginning. Um, what do you know about his role in the organization? I know he came from Miami, but he actually started his scouting, um, you know, got a scouting foot uh, starting Carolina. Um, what type of role does he have with the Buffalo front office? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like you said, got a football lifer, seven years in Carolina, then eight years in uh, Miami, working his way up from those, like, you know, the <laughs> terrible local scouting roles where you're literally just a road warrior out there at, you know, crazy schools, just going from school to school, doing doing literal scouting breakdowns over and over and over again, um, all the way up to pro player personnel in Miami. And then when Brandon Bean got the call, um, and like you said, please, thank you again for going back to Gettleman and letting Brandon Bean leave. <laughs> we, we, we appreciate that. Um, when Bean got to Buffalo, his very first call was to Joe Shane and was to bring him aboard as his assistant GM. Um, now in Buffalo, the it's it's the good and the bad of it in that you know, Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott believe very much in empowered leadership and putting people in. This is not the Patriots with Bill Belichick and him guarding all the secrets. They put people in power to develop and to grow and to make good decisions. Um, and the Bills are, are fairly transparent as far as teams go. They do their own branded um, off-season videos. You can see some snippets there. I had a chance to meet Shane and, and Brandon Bean down at the Senior Bowl. And he very much is empowered to make decisions. You saw clips where he was the sole negotiator in free agent deals where Brandon Bean was off in another room working on a deal and comes back and finds out, Oh, you got him. That's great. Meaning that he fully empowered him to go pursue sign, close a deal all on his own, you know, showing the, obviously a great deal of trust. Um, I will say, you know, as far as, you know, his background, it definitely is on the player evaluation, scouting, pro personnel side of it. So he's Got done it. both the college scouting and then the opponent pro personnel scouting, but it's still pretty heavily leaned in that realm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's always interesting to kind of get a perspective of 
um, you know, how these guys kind of move up. And Buffalo, I, I would say they have one of the better front offices in the entire NFL. I don't think it really takes a genius to say that. I mean, really I'm just looking really deep. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I'm just I, I love at, that about Brandon Bean, the humility he has of having mm-hmm. not, you know, some guys need to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. You know, people who are confident enough to have a bunch of talented people around him to and delegate to them is, is nice. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's interesting because, um, you know, the Panthers, when they had Joe Shane uh, on their staff, they also had another guy, uh, Ryan Cowden of he, he's now in Tennessee. He's also an up and comer. He was really young. Um, guy that they could potentially look at. So it it, it kind of um, – I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but do you feel like Shane is ready to become a general manager or do you feel like um, you know, maybe he has to kind of stay for like another couple seasons to really kind of harness his skill set with that front office? I'd love to lie to you and say that, no, you guys shouldn't want him at all and, <laughs> and you should let him, let him brew a little bit more. He, he's ready. He is, it's uh, Bills fans, any informed Bills fan will tell you it's just a matter of time. He's going to get plucked. He deserves it. Um, He is in that position. And Brandon Bean talks about him that way. You know, Mm -hmm. he's not trying to guard him and keep him from getting opportunities. He's out there telling people like, listen, this guy's ready, qualified, and going to be a great GM, and we're going to wish him well every week he doesn't play the Bills. Um, And I think he's in that kind of spot. You look at the Bills, they are – one the most analytically driven if not one of you know if you want to argue top three or top five one of the most analytically driven teams in the league um however they don't blindly follow that they've found a great mix of Mm -hmm. guys with that gut scouting instinct in history with really intelligent information and they've taken a guy you know sean mcdermott's about his you know cliche stereotypical football guys you can get and he's come over to that side and he's talked about it that it's making good decisions having more information to make good decisions and then understanding why the numbers tell you that and then following your gut in the moment so I I see Joe Shane in that same light he may have come up in the scouting player evaluation realm, but he's now gotten to negotiate contracts. He's now gotten to negotiate. He negotiated the trade up for Cody Ford in um, where they drafted him to move up in the second round. So he's doing draft day trades. He's in those negotiations from a cap standpoint, he's getting all the information and data from an analytics standpoint and seeing how the importance of infrastructure and leadership and surrounding yourself with smart people and seeing how to run a good organization. He checks every box in my mind. So I'm not there in the interview room. I don't know if he has that it factor. And, you know, that's always the kind of the last little piece that you don't know from a leadership standpoint, but you know, I don't, I don't know that Brandon Bean is a guy that blows you away in that kind of moment and that you kind of need to see him in action to be like, Oh, this is why people, follow him and are on board um but i i will be shocked if it's whether it's carolina whether it's yeah most bills fans worst nightmare is that joe shane and brian dable go together to the jets <laughs> and, and try to fix that or go together to jacksonville with trevor lawrence or whatever it is um so you guys are in a different spot where it wouldn't be a package deal it would just be joe shane but uh i think it's just a matter of time and if it's not this season i'll be shocked yeah, no, and to get to your earlier point, uh, Brandon Bean in 2012, after they fired Marty Herney, he was the interim GM. 
most of us fans kind of just brushed it aside and they were like, yeah, this young guy is probably not going to get the job. And then they hired Gettleman. And actually, to Gettleman's credit, he did um, give Bean a pretty big voice um, in the front office and he elevated him, uh, promoted him a few times. And I think one day, I think there was like the third day of the draft in 2013 or 14, Gettleman had to go um, to his son's graduation and essentially Bean was uh, the one running the show. Um, but and I think I'd be hard pressed to say that Brandon Bean would be the same GM he was now if right. not for that mentorship and, and position that you know he's a smart guy he probably could have figured it out if 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 Carolina had given him the job I don't think he'd be the leader he is now if not for that that opportunity yeah no and 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 you guys would probably agree that uh, Bean probably had to go through like a learning stage and especially in 2017 I was completely shocked that you guys gave up a third round pick for Kelvin Benjamin. Um, that, that just doesn't seem like something you guys would even think about doing at, at this um, stage. I mean, you're trading for the best wide receiver, in my opinion, in the NFL. I've been saying that for a couple of years now. So this isn't just hindsight on Diggs. Yeah, it's, there's, been, there, there's been plenty of misses, but luckily a lot more hits. And that's, yeah, it, I think that's just the way any smart GM is going to be. No, definitely. And, and the way you're kind of explaining um, – you know, Brandon Bean and Joe Shane, they certainly come from the more modern GM type where um, certainly analytics are involved. But like you said, they do execute. I'm just looking at some of the draft um, ac- you know, pr- decisions that they've made. They do a lot of trade-ups, which some analytics people can uh, get a little annoyed with. But at the same time, their scouting um, is pretty spot on, especially recently. So you have to give them credit for that. Well, um, and I think also – it was also the position that the team was in and and the spot they were in that rebuild where you had empty coffers. You could afford to add a bunch of high picks. I actually think we're going to see that pivot now. I'll be shocked if this season we don't see multiple trade downs where you're looking for more shotgun approach of just more bites of the apple, cheaper contracts, more picks to bring in to supplement having to extend guys because he's now just going to get into the first window of paying the people that he picked. And it's going to be interesting to see that, but it's, I think it is a good example, the way you framed it, that they're not married to it. He didn't come up like Andrew Barry in in that kind of world where that's his origin. I actually think it's healthier that he came up having to do the grunt and grind work. And now has also added that as a supplement because now you can utilize that information with the background and framework of doing the old school football world. I actually think it's a really good mix. No, definitely for sure. And before we close, I do want to ask you about one other guy, um, Dan Morgan. Dan Morgan did play; he was drafted by the Carolina Panthers organization. Um, a lot of you know old school fans remember him. He was kind of the Luke Keekley before Luke Keekley. Uh, unfortunately, concussions kind of shortened his career, um, just like Keekley. Uh, and then he moved on to Seattle's front office and uh, John Schneider, and you know those guys over there they do a terrific job. And then uh, Brandon Bean brings him over to Buffalo. Do you have any thoughts on him and if he's a potential guy who's angling for a GM job in the future? In the future. And if you, you know, if, um, if Joe Shane is Brandon Bean's number two, Dan Morgan is his number three. Okay. Um, you also hear some names with Malik Boyd and Lake Dawson, some really sharp guys in the front office on top of, you know, obviously having Dennis Hickey, the former Dolphins GM and Brian Gain, the former uh, Texans GM. So they, they've built a, a, you know, pretty strong stockpile of talent in that room. Morgan is definitely number three. He's more of your initial question about Shane. I don't know that he's ready right now, 
but he would be the very obvious new assistant GM if Shane gets that job. He would get the bump there. Um, right now, he's more of what Shane was in Miami as the director of pro personnel and focusing more on the scouting reports, potential free agents, um, snagging guys off other practice squads, that kind of stuff. And I think that as he gets the next bump up and rounds that out more, um, doing more of the college scouting, the drafting, the contract negotiations, trades, things like that, you'd see his skill set round out. So I think he has that potential. I think he's going to be a GM at some point. Maybe that's three to five years off. Um, of where he's ready for that. But um, he's certainly somebody to keep your eye on that I, I think has that potential. Awesome. Thank you so much for this information and we really appreciate it. Uh, you know, all of us Panther fans are wishing our uh, former colleagues, good luck, Sean McDermott, <laughs> Eric Washington, AJ Klein, Vernon Butler, Mario Addison, and so on and so on. And of course, uh, Brandon Bean, Joe Shane and uh, Dan Morgan. So, uh, you know, honestly, you guys have been a thrill to watch this season. It's been awesome. Um, I wish you guys luck this weekend for the rest of the season as well. Uh, thank you for joining. Appreciate it very much. Looking forward to it. And to help us preview the former general manager of the New York Giants, Jerry Reese, we have Dan Pizzuta from Sharp Football Analysis. He does great work um, for them. And I highly recommend everyone follow him on Twitter at Dan Pizzuta. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Uh, Carolina is involved in another um, GM search. The last time they looked for a GM, 2013, they went to someone very familiar with your organization, Ernie Accorsi, for help, and they ended up hiring Dave Gettleman. Um, some mixed results here. I'm sure uh, his time in Carolina is not as much frowned upon as it is currently in New York. But um, another uh, guy who's uh, – who interviewed actually yesterday for the role was Jerry Reese. He spent, I think he got, he started with the giants in 1994 and he kind of just worked his way up to become the general manager since 2007. Um, or excuse me, 2007, 2017. And one thing that sticks out to me about his tenure, especially as it relates to the draft is uh, because they were so successful, uh, the giants were usually drafting late in the draft. I know kind of towards the end of his tenure in 2014 and, up until two, until he left, they were picking a, a little higher. But what were your thoughts on him? You know, c- kind of leaving out uh, the free agency and other uh, portions of his responsibility. I just want to focus on the draft. Uh, what did you make of his entire tenure when it came to the draft for the Giants? Well, it was interesting. And one thing is because, you know, it was so long. There is, oh, obviously there's going to be a lot of hits and misses just because of what, the the tenure he had really and even before he was the general manager he was the director of uh college scouting uh before he was promoted so even before his you know 20 2007 draft which is really his first one you know he was still uh involved in you know selecting you know the, the eli manning selecting the justin talks in the third round but once we got into what his actual um you know t- general manager tenure was he he had some hits i think what really uh, brought him down was some of the injuries that uh, these players had, it, especially even like some of the good players. You look at 2008, the first round pick was Kenny Phillips. Uh, second round pick was uh, Terrell Thomas. And the third round pick was Mario Manningham. All of those were you know, decent players when they were on the field. Uh, then injuries ravaged them. Same thing kind of happened with Akeem Nix, uh, 2009 first round pick. Uh, and then you look at some other guys. Uh, you look at the, the 
2012 draft. Uh, David Wilson uh, had that severe neck injury uh, after his first year. Um, and then you just have a lot of stuff like that. The Weston Richburg and Justin Pugh, really good players on the offensive line. Um, and then the offensive line kind of started to struggle uh, late in uh, Jerry Reese's tenure. That's when those offensive line struggles you know, really started. And we still kind of see them today with the Giants. But you had guys like Weston Richburg and Justin Pugh, still really good players when they were on the field, just uh, injured uh, quite a bit. And that started to really hurt uh, the Giants. And that kind of went into some of the free agency stuff that they had to do just because a lot of this just there wasn't depth uh, in those late rounds and that kind of really started to hurt what was uh, available uh, for the Giants especially cheaply so that that was one of the biggest things for Jerry Reese and I think the other thing we need to point out is uh, he's one of these other general managers that he never traded down in the draft um, mm-hmm. so even when they were they were picking late uh, you, you know usually 19th or, or in the 20s there uh he never traded down. So it was always, he was a very much a best player available type of guy. He liked his board. Uh, he looked at it and, and he picked whoever he thought was, was going to be there. So I think when you, when you look at all of that, um, the, the thing that, that really stands out the once I was looking at it is a reminder that he never traded down in a draft. Is that just like an Ernie or Corsi thing? Because I know Gettleman has been. Yeah, um, Gettleman's never thing. done that either. Yeah, I, it must be some kind of organiza- organizational philosophy there. Uh, I would, I would guess, but yeah, it's it's something that that definitely stood out. I mean, he had ten drafts on his own, and never, and it's not even just the first round. He never even played around with with those middle or or late round picks. So he never traded down. Yeah, that's another thing that uh, has moved on to Gettleman, and and we see that now with the Giants, but. Uh, that, that sticks around a lot. But one, one thing he also does is, um, you know, I'm not sure how it relates to the Panthers and, you know, Curtis Samuel is obviously a free agent, but he was always big in, in picking up wide receivers. And it seems like he never thought he could have enough uh, depth there. You know, he got Hakeem Nix and then he would, uh, uh, Jarrell Jernigan was in the 2011 third round. Uh, the other Steve Smith from USC, who was kind of Victor Cruz before uh, Victor Cruz. And then he had that severe uh, knee injury that kind of knocked him out uh, of the NFL. And then, you know, Odell Beckham in 2014, when the Giants didn't really need a wide receiver, but it was, again, a best player available there at at pick number 12. Um, so he kept going to to that. And even I think you could put in Evan Ingram and uh, 2017, where he didn't really need a, a tight end, but I think that that pass catching ability there. So I think he really, um, you know, thought about pass catchers, and I think that was one of the places where he was uh, a little ahead of the curve there, with knowing how important that was going to be to a team. And how did the structure work for the Giants? Because it seems like um, you know Reese spent most, if not all, of his tenure with Tom Coughlin. How did that dynamic work between the two? Yeah, I think it was definitely a collaborative um, type of thing. I think, you know, because they were together for so long, they they were on the same page mostly for how they wanted. I don't think Coughlin was super involved in like the, the final processes of the decision-making. I think that was a, a lot of recent. There was a lot of, um, you know, Chris Mara and uh, some other uh, front office people who were all involved there and they were really the, the final decision-makers there. But I think Coughlin was, um, was involved to an extent. And I think they just, because of how long everyone was together, they knew. And then, you know, the, the last couple of years with Ben McAdoo, I don't think he was quite as involved, but I think did have a bit of a say. But I, I would imagine if, you know, he comes into Carolina, that's going to be a much more a collaborative effort. And I think if, you know, he does get hired, I think you think he 
you know, knows that coming in and, and it'll be something that the Carolina would be, uh, you know, comfortable with. But uh, I think to the point where he was with the Giants, uh, he, he had a final say over the roster. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to talk about this 2016 free agency class because it, it certainly was a hit. And usually in free agency, it's, it's very, I wouldn't say it's rare, but more often than not, um, when you're handing out these big deals, uh, most teams will regret it. Um, but uh, you know, Snacks Harrison, Olivier Vernon, Janoris Jenkins, I mean, those three guys, I would say, really did help propel the Giants that season uh, to make the playoffs. Um, but outside of that, how was uh, the pro personnel side under Jerry Reese? So they, that kind of comes back to what we just talked about with the draft. Because they didn't have the depth, a lot of times mm-hmm. they were going out and targeting these mid-tier free agents, but not doing it in like a, you know, a Patriots way where they're paying cheap for guys um, who can play a specific role. They were paying, uh, you know, not, you know, top of the market, but, you know, market level deals for these, you know, mid-tier players uh, and having them fill, you know, significant roles uh, in, uh, on the team. And that's kind of what uh, eventually uh, brought the cap up a little bit. That's kind of why there were so many holes on the roster. You were paying guys like, you know, Dwayne Harris, I think was making like $7 million at, at one point to be not only a punt returner, but the team's third wide receiver. Uh, you had guys like that uh, who were uh, coming in throughout, you know, JT Thomas was, was a linebacker who was paid uh, much more than he should have uh, to be like the, the starting middle linebacker. So you had stuff like that. So there were a lot of misses there and that's, really where the the depth and some of the cap problems started and uh, when you looked at the the, that 2017 class with with Vernon um, and uh, Harrison and Jenkins was kind of you know out of necessity because they just didn't have those pieces so they had to take those swings Uh, but and while it helped in in 2016 I think we saw in 2017 how them kind of thinking what 2016 was was you know what they were but they really played well beyond what that roster was in 2016 and that kind of is what put them uh, so far back into 2017 and kind of push them into what they were today because they weren't nearly as good as what they thought they were in 2016. And they tried to build on that instead of kind of, you know, it was kind of a a painting a house that didn't really have the foundation uh, Mm -hmm. completely in place. So uh, as good as those were, and I think all the massive swings he made were good, but it was some of the underlying things that really just kind of undermined everything else and and pushed the roster uh, to kind of what it is today. But not that he, I don't think, I'm not blaming Jerry Reese for, you know, what the 2020 team looks like. I think you'll still see some, some Giants fans that'll say Reese left the roster in, like, in cap hell and Dave Gettleman had to pull himself out of that, which, which isn't true. The Giants could have kept JPP and they could have kept Vernon if they wanted to, to work some around and all that, all that dead money that Dave Gettleman put on the cap um, in, in 2018 uh, was, was really his choice, especially after the Odell Beckham extension. Um, so, uh, you know, Jerry Reese didn't leave the roster great, um, but not as severely um, depleted as some, uh, some other Giants fans would lead you to believe. Sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I guess, um, you know, it's going to be interesting because a lot of um, the names that you've seen, uh, the Carolinas cast such a wide net. It, it's hard to keep track of who they're interviewing. I mean, um, just in the retread side, it's Jerry Reese and I think Jeff Ireland for now. Um, but do you think Reese uh, does deserve another opportunity to become um, a general manager again? I know Matt Rule did spend a year in 
New York with that franchise. So again, I don't know what type of relationship he has with them, but you know, just listening to David Tepper's comments after they fired Marty Herney, it seems like he wants to go in a direction for a guy who's more process and data oriented. Um, you know, again, I don't know what type of kind of tiered system maybe the Giants use under Jerry Reese. Uh, I was just speaking to you know, someone who covers the Patriots. That's sort of what they do um, under Belichick. Uh, but, you know, just looking back at what Marty Herney did, he did he wasn't really like a process-oriented guy in, in some ways. He just scouted and took the best player available. Whereas with Gettleman, th- there was, you know, I didn't agree with it, but there was some sort of poly- kind of process about – you know, how to build a team, especially in the trenches and whatnot. Um, do you see kind of those similarities uh, with Reese? And do you feel like he should be a GM again? Yeah, it's interesting because I think one of the things is I'm not totally sure what 2020 or 2021 right now Jerry Reese <laughs> yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, that, that caught me by surprise as I said it. Um, because he hasn't worked in the NFL since uh, he was let go by the Giants after that 2017 season. And he hasn't really been that out in the public. He hasn't done really the media thing. We, we haven't really heard him pop up. So I, I mean, if I was him, I would hope that he has been, you know, taking note of what the league has been over the past three seasons since he worked there and, and reworking some of his philosophies. I don't think there was, you know, a heavy analytical uh, drive to what the Giants were doing, especially back in 2017. I do believe he was closer to the let's scout this guy and um, and pick the best player available, which, you know, sometimes worked out um, uh, for him. He, he did have some some good hits uh, and some even some of the, the bad hits were guys that have done better uh, other places. So, um, uh, my thing is if, you know, he has a good interview in Carolina and he eventually gets hired, that would make me feel better about what, uh, the 2021 version of Jerry Reese is, uh, knowing, listening to what, you know, Matt rule and, uh, what David Tepper, uh, seemed to want in a general manager going forward. So if he does get hired, I I would feel kind of better about uh, maybe some of the things he's reflected on and evolved, uh, since the last time he was a general manager. Uh, but right now I'm just, I'm not totally sure what that version is. And it it definitely was more of the, this, the scout him and, and draft him uh, type of thing back when he was with the giants. Yeah, I mean, and to his credit, he did draft quite a few um, good players, as, as we've reflected on. Um, it's similar kind of to Marty Herney, where he, you know, Herney, it just, um, there wasn't necessarily like a rhyme to a rhythm. He would draft like an ultra athletic guy like Brian Burns, and then he would draft a um, really poor uh, athletic um, uh, prospect like Rashawn Galdon. So, uh, so for the Panthers, they have to be more process oriented. If you saw what they did um, in day two and day three of the draft last year, um, they took much more of an approach of guys who meet certain athletic thresholds. Yeah. I loved it. So again, you know, the Derek Brown pick was whatever, uh, supposedly Marty Herney had a pretty big say in that one. Um, and it, it is what it is, but uh, it's going to be interesting. And I know Jerry Reese is also interviewing with the Jaguars too. Um, so it's not like Carolina's the only one. Uh, here. Uh, but Dan, I really want to thank you for coming on and helping us uh, preview him. And uh, this is some tremendous insight that I'm sure plenty will uh, take. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really uh, appreciate you having me on. Yep. And you can find all of his work at Dan Pizzuto on Twitter. He does some excellent analysis each Monday, um, putting up his first and 10 column, something I've really enjoyed throughout the season. So thank you again, Dan. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it.